So we're going to start the, I guess this is really the back half. These last four are the back half of the topic. So the first two are just introducing, getting ourselves into the, the topic, broadly understanding the different pieces of how these all fit together. And now I want to spend time for the next three sessions, or so really the next hour, on tongues. Then we're going to go into healing and miracles. And then we're going to go into gift of prophecy. So those are ones on that list, if you're paying attention, uh, they're... We didn't go over them just now, but they were all in all the different lists. So why did we omit them? Because they kind of deserve their own attention. So I want to start off with a quote. I have it up here. If you have a handout, it'll, might, it might be easier to read there. But this is uh, from the Westminster Confession of Faith. It says this. It says, Therefore it pleased the Lord to declare that his will unto the church, and afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and the world to commit the same holy unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. So in the Westminster Confession of Faith, what they're referring to, and this is also in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, this idea of Revelation, the revelation being what we have recorded for us in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, the divine teaching of God about doctrine and faith, that those former ways, when it pleased the Lord to reveal through the prophets, through the apostles, those ways have now ceased to function and that we're not waiting for someone to come down and say, I have another manuscript, we're going to tab it on to the end of Revelation. We're, we're not expecting that. And it's because we would say that at the conclusion of the apostolic age, when the canon of scripture was fulfilled, that those former ways of revealing truth have now ceased to operate in that same way. Every single um, evangelical Protestant would by and large agree with the fact that we're not waiting for more things to be tabbed into our New Testament. If they were insisting on that, then we would have difficulty saying, well, what are we expecting? What, are, what, else, is, what else is coming? Um, but we would, we would say that we have all the completion of these things um, in the canon of the New Testament scriptures. So, I think that is clarifying because what we're going to talk about in the next three sessions really has to do with, is that statement true or not? And so as we look at tongues, as we look at uh, healing and miracles, as we look at prophecy, we're going to have to be looking at this all through the lens of, did the former ways of revelation stop or are they still ongoing and expected uh, for today? So that's kind of the, the way we're going to look at this. Um, the first thing you'll notice uh, with tongues um, I'm looking at that now. Did I misspell that word? Anyone? No? Every time. 50-50. So. Um, great. So we're going to look at uh, tongues now. And so to start this off, I want to do a, a few different things. The first thing I want to do is look in Acts and read out of Acts chapter 2. And then we're not going to read all of it, but we're going to be also bouncing around in, in 1 Corinthians 12 uh, through 14. Kind of the whole section that deals with spiritual gifts, and tongues is mentioned both on the front and the back end of 1 Corinthians. So Acts chapter 2, and you'll want to see this as well with me, so I recommend having either a copy of God's Word in front of you or just look on the person uh, next to you. I'm just going to start reading in verse 1 of Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak 
in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were, dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judah and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygma and Pamphyla, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors of Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking, saying they were filled with new wine. So that's the section out of Acts 2 uh, that's important. When you're thinking about the inauguration of the spiritual gifts, the first thing that should come to mind to you, at least chronologically, is Acts chapter 2. That's when the Spirit fills uh, the twelve. And they come out uh, speaking in tongues uh, and really bewildering the crowd. And then after this, Peter gets up and, and preaches um, and, and tells them that this is not a surprise because uh, Joel said that in the last days, you would see all people prophesying. You'd see the Spirit poured out on all, all people. They'll see visions. They will see dreams. Um, and this will not be reserved for some unique priestly class. This will be for uh, male, female servants. Everybody will be uh, doing this. And so... When, when Peter does this, he's, he's inaugurating a new part of church history. He's, he, the Holy Spirit coming down and filling the Twelve starts off something that kind of carries this momentum to the end of Acts and really throughout the rest of um, the apostolic age. And so the first question, though, to address from the text is this question. Are these tongues that they're referring to here known human languages or not? Now, you might be aware of the other text that we're going to look at in 1 Corinthians. I'll just paraphrase it. But you can check it as well, and, and I encourage you to do so. Um, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, uh, there's the reference that Paul makes uh, to people speaking in tongues. And then later, uh, when he talks about uh, abusing the gifts, abusing tongues, he says, um, if I speak in the tongues of angels but have not love, I'm nothing, right? Uh, that, that it doesn't matter anymore. And people take that statement from Paul as there is such a thing as the tongues of angels, which means not all tongues are known human languages. And Paul also talks about in that same section about private prayer. He says, I speak in tongues more than all of you, um, and, and for that I am thankful. But he, he doesn't say that he does this necessarily in the church, right? So then the, then the question is, when Paul's referring to tongues, and when Acts is referring to tongues, are these two different kinds of things? Are the gifts different in different locations? How do we, how do we put that all together? I think the first governing principle is what's stated clearly in the text, at least in the, the section in Acts, is that there were tongues and no one needed these tongues interpreted to them. So we have the, the apostles speaking in many tongues. We're told that in the text. But what we're not told is that someone also gets up and translates. The amazing thing in this section is that everyone who's there is hearing these things in their own native language, which means as the apostles are speaking, they're speaking languages that they don't know, but that other people know. We know this because if they were speaking an angelic language, then how are the other people hearing that angelic language and understanding it? Because they're specifically naming, and you, you notice it's a long list in that section, various regions, various ethnicity, as ethnic groups that all speak different languages, all understanding these things. So it's not possible that they all speak some universal angelic language. They're, what they're saying is, I can understand in my language. It's crazy because he understands in his language. And it's crazy because they can't speak those languages. <laughs> so the whole thing is these are languages, and transversing that language barrier is a testament to what's happening in the spirit. We'll go more into why that's the case when we talk about the purpose of them. 
But in Acts chapter 2, at least, I think it's safe to say these are known languages. And that then leaves the question of 1 Corinthians 12 uh, through 14. And so I want to turn there um, because a lot of this is going to depend on uh, kind of seeing the argument in 1 Corinthians as it, as it unfolds. And so we're going to be broadly talking about some things. We'll look at some specific verses as well. So the first thing is um, when, we're, when we're looking at 1 Corinthians, at this point in time, Paul is talking about how in the church do we gather together and properly worship the Lord? How do we do so in an orderly fashion? So you'll notice that in 1 Corinthians 12, he's already got momentum into this. And earlier he's talking about head coverings and then the Lord's Supper. How do we do this in a worthy way? So the whole thing is order of worship. When we gather together as believers, what does this look like? And so then when he talks about spiritual gifts, he says, all of them are good. All of them are beneficial. Um, but when you go together to do this, do so in an orderly way. So he gives them some instructions for that. He talks about all the gifts that have been given. We've read those sections together. He talks about the need of one another dependent on the body. So we shouldn't quench the spirit. We shouldn't ignore the spiritual gifts as they're unfolding. And then he, he talks about the fact that not everyone has each individual gift, right? And then verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 13 is the, that verse that I referenced earlier. And I just want to read that section in its, full, uh, or in its fullness. And I want you to pick up kind of the, the tone of Paul. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So as Paul is talking about this, I want to skip then to the uh, verse 8 of that section. He says this, he says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And so those, those verses right there, I think, uh, is, is all we need to really uh, read for the discussion. I'll reference some of the other stuff as well. But when Paul is, is saying, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, He's speaking not in terms of a literal thing, but in terms of hyperbole. We know this because the very next statement is also a hyperbolic statement. The, he says uh, in verse 2, If I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, no person understands all mysteries and all knowledge. Only God can do that. But his point is, even if, even if I had zero on the love scale and I was maxed out on the ability to understand, it doesn't matter because love is that important. So he's saying, if I had the kind of knowledge and understanding that God has, but I don't have love, it doesn't matter. So he's speaking in hyperbole because he can't, he, he can't do that. And he's not assuming for his readers that they are assuming that he can do that. So the same applies when he speaks about tongues. When he says, if I speak in the tongues of men, and, and even more so, what if I spoke in the tongues of angels, the angelic language? What then? But if I don't have love? So he's speaking the whole time in things that are not possible. He's doing it as a rhetorical hyperbolic statement to prove to them the foolishness of ignoring the gift of love. And, and uh, he continues that uh, in verse 8. That's why I skipped over to that section. He says, prophecies and tongues and knowledge, all of these things will pass away. But what's interesting is love will not pass away. And he tells us when they will pass away. He says, by the time that the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And the perfect 
is not referring to anything other than Jesus returning once again in power, in glory. And then we will, uh, we will see him face to face. We will be like him, as it says in, uh, in 1 John. So Paul is saying that when that happens, these other things that have happened will, will, have be, will be gone at that point. We won't need them anymore. We'll have love. So he tells us prophecies will pass away. Knowledge will pass away because right now we prophesy in part. And so even later in that section, he says he doesn't have all knowledge. He doesn't have all prophecy. He doesn't have all understanding because he says right now I prophesy in part. So we can make that same connection where if he's speaking in hyperbole earlier in the prophetic section, he, he has to also be doing that same rhetorical device in uh, verse 1 of chapter 13 as well. So putting that all together, um, I think it's the, the biblical argument that I think is the safest, uh, most faithful of the text is that in, in cases that we see, tongues are always known human languages. Okay? And then the second question kind of coming off of that is, well then, what is the purpose of tongues? With all the other spiritual gifts, you might be able to answer this question, right? What is the purpose of the gift? Always, the spiritual gifts are for the edification of the body. Now the question is, how does tongues edify the body in Paul's mind? If it's a known human language, how does it accomplish this? So his argument is, is manifold and it's complex. And you can, uh, I'll reference some of these texts as we go through it. But if you follow the chronology of Acts in the giving of tongues uh, first to uh, the Jewish people when they hear uh, the preaching at Pentecost, and then when you see uh, later it's given to the, uh, the Gentiles uh, at Cornelius' house, and then later, even still, it's given to the Samaritans. So as you follow that unfolding in the book of Acts, what you see is that tongues is going forward as the gospel is going forward to essentially confirm that this is how the gospel ought to go forward. Now, that won't make sense to you if you've never read your Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, the first kind of judgment that God does to all the people when they're bound together speaking one language is he divides them into many different tongues. So Babylon, the judgment of God, is when all the people are coming together unified to rebel against God, he divides them into many tongues. And so when Jesus comes back, resurrected in power, and then gives his Holy Spirit to the people, his symbol for how this is undoing the curse, how it's remaking the body, how it's redoing creation, is by giving tongues so that those divided languages can now be understood across the barrier. So he does this first with the Jewish people, because now his gospel has gone to the Jews. Then he does that with the Gentiles, letting them know that their gospel goes also to the Gentiles. And then the specific laying of hands onto the Samaritans to pray over them and for them to prophesy in tongues. You also see this as well with the people who are baptized under John's baptism, and then they get baptized in Jesus' baptism, and then they get tongues as well. Um, so you have, in, in each of those cases, it's someone who's being inaugurated in, and the gospel's going forward, and that is confirmed with the gift of tongues. So in, in each of those cases, we see that to be true. Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel, if you want to cross-reference that idea, but it's thematically significant in salvation and redemption history that the tongues is really the undoing of the Tower of Babel. So we have to understand it in its context as it would have been understood in the first century. And the other piece I think is uh, significant is um, in chapter uh, 14 of 1 Corinthians verse 5, he says this, he says, Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Remember, the emphasis of the gifts is on the edification of the body. And so, if someone speaks in tongues, his earlier instruction was, that's fine, but someone needs to also be there to interpret. And if no one's there to interpret, then this gift of tongues isn't a gift of tongues unified by the Spirit. 
It's disordered chaos because no one understands what you say and no one understands what you say because no one's there to interpret what you say. And so he says, uh, if, if the purpose of the gift is the edification of the body, he says, prophecy is to be valued over tongues and if tongues only in the case of also an interpreter present who can understand and who can relay what's been said. So um, in the case of uh, Acts 2, no interpreter needed to be present because they all natively spoke the language that was being spoken. But Paul is assuming here they're kind of located in the same cities, located in the same areas. Now they're pretty much speaking the same language. So someone who's speaking in tongues is likely not going to hit the language range demonstrated in that church. And so only with an interpreter should you speak in tongues. <coughs> What's interesting is Paul doesn't address or really take any issue at all with the, what he calls like essentially the, the prayer of tongues in private practice. He, 1 Corinthians really doesn't even address that. He mentions that it's a thing, and then he just kind of totally moves on. Because remember, the focus of the letter is orderly worship, not personal devotional life. And so I don't think scripture, one way or the other, we can say that someone should never pray in tongues privately, or if that's not a thing. Um, but I, I do think that if we're asking the question, how does Paul organize the church? How does Paul guard the church? He guards it by saying that tongues, yes, if an interpretation. And if no interpretation, no tongues. This is true of orderly worship. In the same way that if someone is uh, sinning in communion, they shouldn't take communion. It's all in the same kind of orderly structure that we should, as the body, do things that are becoming of believers. So all of this together, I think, makes the case that, remember, tongues, the purpose of it is building up the church. Uh, specifically, salvifically, it's, it's important. Um, and then for Paul, you know, the private uh, speaking in tongues is almost, he doesn't even really mention it much. So it's, it's, it's kind of hard to, to dive into that more fully. Um, but I think in every case, we can say that tongues are known human languages, not necessarily some uh, ecstatic murmuring or angelic languages, um, as we, we often see that today. So, um, and, and we know, uh, for example, people who are language experts have, have studied some of uh, the people who speak in tongues, and there's no uh, consistent pattern, there's no consistent flow as all languages have. So it's not like it's a known human language that we just haven't discovered yet, or it just doesn't follow any of the patterns of language that uh, we understand. It's just uh, murmuring. So um, if we're comparing the modern expression of this gift, as is often seen with the biblical equivalent, what the biblical standard for tongues is, I think it's probably safe to say that what we're not seeing today is the gift of tongues exercised in the church. That doesn't mean that I think that the gift of tongues doesn't still abound today, if possible. But I'm saying if we're open to the spiritual gift still existing, what we also have to say is it has to also follow the pattern as is laid out in Scripture. And because this is not the pattern that we see today, I think it's also safe to say that that's not the biblical equivalent. Now that's very, very different from frontline mission work where they don't have common language and they're trying to preach the gospel. And sometimes they're trying to explain the gospel and all of a sudden everyone understands what's being said by the grace of the Spirit. Those are rare circumstances. They likely do happen for the gospel to go forth, but they're exceedingly rare and they match the biblical standard for the gift of tongues because it's a, it's a language unknown to the person spoken and understood as another human language. So in those kinds of cases, I would say that that's meeting the biblical qualifications for this gift and we can say that that's probably a, a valid gift. Um, but in the case of what unfortunately is really dominating the West, I don't think that that's, it, do, it doesn't really hold a candle to what we see in scripture, so. We'll pause then again.